Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Believe in UCLA football podcast. We'll be here with a new episode for you right after this quick note. The last of the major pro sports leagues kicks off this week, and Bet Online is your top spot for all of your NBA action this season. With the MLB postseason, NFL, college football, and NHL in full swing, Bet Online is your number one source for your wagering, news, odds, trends, and predictions. Get everything NBA at your fingertips with both desktop and mobile access for every sport, anytime. Don't forget to use promo code BELIEVE to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Believe in UCLA football podcast. My name is James Williams, a reporter and editor for the Orange County Register covering UCLA football and excited to have you guys back. Sorry we missed last week. It's been a busy couple of weeks. UCLA coming off a win over Stanford. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Josh Woods will not be joining us today as he prepares for his upcoming game with the BC Lions competing in the Canadian Football League. They have a CFL division semifinal game coming up against the Stampeders pretty soon. So he is getting ready for that. But we do have a special guest. Darren Chevrini joins the podcast. He was an analyst as recently as spring football for UCLA under Chip Kelly. Worked for Chip Kelly for a year. And, you know, we talked about that experience. Uh, what it's like for UCLA to be playing against his alma mater, which is Colorado. We talk about Colorado a little bit. And then also we talk about what happened and some of the takeaways from that Stanford game, including Ethan Garbers and him getting the start at quarterback and much more. So before we get started with that, just a few quick things again from that Stanford game, a very impressive showing, as you would expect. I think many people would have expected going into that Stanford game. UCLA wins 42-7 to over Stanford. The game was played on the road, so a road victory. That might have been, if I remember correctly, the first road win in conference play for UCLA this season. Yeah, they lost the, the road game against Oregon State and Utah. So first road win for UCLA, so it is significant from that standpoint. Again, Stanford is down this year. They have Troy Taylor as their coach this year, taking over for David Shaw. But the star of the night was Carson Steele on his 21st birthday, giving UCLA the early 21-0 lead with three touchdowns, all short yardage touchdowns, more or less one for two yards, one for eight yards, and one for three yards. So a pretty significant day, let alone it being his 21st birthday, but just for Carson Steele on the field in terms of his performance. Ethan Garbers got on the board throwing his first touchdown pass, an eight-yard pass to J. Michael Sturdivant, getting him involved. I think that was one of the more significant things with Garbers. They were able to get a lot of receivers involved. Not that Dante Moore wasn't, but it just moved differently. The offense moved differently, um, and I think we're in line here to see Ethan Garbers potentially start again. Chip Kelly did say that Dante was banged up going into the week. Dante did play in this game a little bit, not a whole lot. Justin Martin played. Chase Griffin played as well. So it was a very similar situation to the North Carolina Central game. If Dante was banged up, I don't think he would have played in this game. Chip said he was banged up earlier in the week, which led to Garbers getting more reps, which would make sense with him, you know, getting the start. But if 
if he was there is any sort of significant injury or real bang up there, I think we probably wouldn't have seen Dante play. Now, maybe he had some nagging injuries like everyone does at the, during the college football season at this point. Chip said that, you know, he kind of progressed and recovered well or bounced back well later in the week. So not entirely sure what, what the situation was there. Uh, if you kind of just read in between some of what Chip's saying, I think he just wanted Ethan Garbers to start this game, considering you had Dante Moore having thrown interceptions, including a pick six in each of the last three games, all three of those games being in conference play. So just going back here to the scoreboard a little bit, you had Maliki Mataveo catching his first touchdown pass from Ethan Garbers. It was his first one as a Bruin. The tight end had caught a 20-yard pass from Garbers um, in the third quarter. T.J. Harden got on the board late late in the game with 14 minutes left in the fourth quarter with a 22-yard run for a touchdown here against Colorado. It is going to be a homecoming game. There's going to be a lot of people. It has been declared as a sellout. They're going to remove some of the tarps there at the Rolls Bowl. Not all of them is my understanding, but should be a good showing from the crowd nonetheless. Now, I'd be curious to see how that crowd is divided, how much of that is Colorado, how much of that is just kind of casuals that are kind of just trying to figure out what the the Dion hype is all about with this Colorado team. So regardless, I think it'll be nice just to see a packed Rose Bowl. Um, if it's anything close to what the USC game was or the LSU game when both of those teams came to the Rose Bowl in recent years, uh, I think the environment has the opportunity to be a special one. Again, on top of it, you have homecoming. There's the throwback jerseys. I'll leave a link to my uh, article on the throwback jerseys in the show notes here for this podcast. So make sure you scroll down to the bottom and check that out. And you can get a, a view of, or a photo, I should say, of what the new throwback jerseys are going to look like for this game. I don't know if this is going to be something they do every year. Um, I think this was them closing in on the 1954 national championship team. So make sure you click that article and you'll be able to see a photo of the throwback jersey. The throwback jersey is a call back to the 1954 national championship that UCLA claims after finishing number one in the coaches poll. There will be a lot of other activities going on. Just kind of I was able to look at some of the lists for what they have going on the same day as the game, during the game, before the game. It's going to be an eventful day. I think it even starts Friday when they unveil the Terry Donahue statue in front of the Rose Bowl. Terry Donahue passed away a couple of years ago, um, but one was a long tenured coach for UCLA. I believe probably the only coach or recent coach with a winning record among UCLA coaches that have coached that football program. And on top of that, he is the winningest coach in Pac-12 history or Pac-10 history or maybe even Pac-8. It might have even been Pac-8 back in the day. But for the Pac conference, he is the winningest coach. And obviously that record will hold true with the way the Pac-12 is going to be dissolving after this season. And just a few quick other notes here. Um, I will be at the Colorado game, so I will have um, tweets and live updates. Make sure you follow me at JHW Reporter for the latest on that. And also, thank you guys so much for the birthday wishes this week. I did have my 32nd birthday. So again, I do appreciate everyone who reached out on social media with their birthday wishes. It was very much appreciated. Thank you guys very much. Now, with that being said, let's not waste any more time and get right down to it. 
former UCLA analyst and current Chafee College head coach, Darren Chevrini. We've been on the same campuses several times, but this is actually, Darren, I don't know if you recall, this is the first time I believe we've ever talked in person or talked at all, so. honestly. Yeah, I think yeah. so, man. Um, thanks again for hopping on. Appreciate it. Um, we'll just start with Shafi and get get that going. Uh, six and zero, right? Um, I, w- were you a little late to like you were kind of were you a late hire? I feel like it was maybe a little bit of a late hire there, right? Yeah, very late hire. I didn't get the I didn't actually get the job offer until the end of May, and usually, mm-hmm. you know, most college transitions happen like January, February. It's kind of when most transitions happen. So to get a job that late. You know, I stepped on campus, like I said, end of May and had zero players on the roster. And man, I was definitely a little bit, you know, anxious and a little bit concerned, like, how are we going to build this thing this quick, you know? And so to be able to be 6-0 and and, you know, have a good group of freshman players, it's um, been very gratifying, but also been a lot of work. I tell a lot, I tell a lot of people that I've worked harder this year than I have the last 10 years. Um, at the mm-hmm. division one level. And that's because, you know, being the head football coach, but also being the offensive play caller, helping with special teams, you know, doing the recruiting. It's been, it's been a lot, man, but it's been uh, definitely uh, worth it. A six and oh, again, uh, I've told you, I got to get out to a game. That's still, that's still my goal. I got to get out to a game. I was kind of looking to see if you were going to have um, RCC on the schedule. Cause I know obviously you coached at RCC. I went to RCC. Um, weren't they in the same league at one point? Maybe that changed at some point over the yeah, last couple of years. It, it changed because uh, we're in the American division and they're in the national division. So I'm hoping okay. to move to the national division next year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, had a couple of conversations already with people and um, I'm hoping to at least get that matchup with Chafee and Riverside at least once before coach yeah. Kraft retires, you know? Yeah, that would be a good one. And obviously RCC, they're still doing their thing um, and have a pretty successful program going on. Um, but just want to talk to you. Obviously, you're a former Colorado wide receiver as well. Uh, you you have kind of ties and things all over college football here, uh, which is pretty interesting. But um, I see your tweets. You're very proud of what's been going on in Colorado, it seems. Just tell me a little bit about uh, your perspective as an alumni and someone who's also coached at that program uh, not too long ago. Um, what What is that whole thing kind of been like over there with Coach Prime? I mean, it's definitely been, you know, very interesting to watch. You know, obviously, I'm had close ties to the University of Colorado as a former player and also someone that coached there for six years. So I think what Coach Prime is doing is has been awesome for not only college football, but definitely for Colorado football and put, you know, us back on a national level. Um, you know, I think what he's been able to do as far as overhauling the roster has been unprecedented in college football. And, you know, he, he gets a lot of credit for what he's been able to do. But he's also been able to, like, really bring, you know, a different style to – University of Colorado, which I think is awesome for him and his brand. And so I think it's, it's all good. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's always going to be some backlash when, mm-hmm. you know, he's able to, you know, get as much notoriety to the university from other people. But, you know, he's doing his thing and that's that's awesome to see. Well, Darren, uh, obviously um, the quarterback situation has been something that's been much discussed um, especially leading up to the season, but obviously even during the season, uh, Dante started quite a few games, I believe the last five games, but we did have a switch with Ethan Garbers getting the start for the Bruins out at Stanford last night. Uh, just your kind your thoughts on the whole situation and, and more specifically Ethan's performance. Yeah, I got a chance to watch that game, but we played earlier in the day and uh, you know, definitely proud of the way that Ethan played. Did a great job managing that game, you know, with ball control, you know, efficient passes, 
um, staying on schedule, you know, and obviously scoring points for the Bruins. So um, definitely proud of the way he played. And, you know, it, it showed his vet, his veteran presence as far as like mm-hmm. calming things down a little bit and, and uh, taking care of the football, not turning it over. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, something that some people are going to are going to say coming out of that game as well as Stanford, it was Stanford's defense. But um, that was actually my next question. And you kind of hit on it there that I think a lot of Garbers is. Um, experience and his leadership there with the program. This is his third year under Chip Kelly's offense. Um, really kind of showed there uh, last night, right? Yeah, I think it, it, it doesn't matter who you're playing. I mean, you're playing Division One college football. There's a lot of good players out there, a lot of scholarship players on that field. And so at the end of the day, you have to execute and you have to make those throws and you have to make those decisions at the line of scrimmage. And I thought Ethan did that. I mean, um, you could see it just when I was watching it, obviously on television, and you could see that his confidence in the huddle, his confidence at the line of scrimmage, you know, very confident making those throws uh, to the receivers and just managing the offense in general. And that's what you want from your the quarterback position. Um, and something that's been mentioned again quite a bit is obviously, do you take Dante out? Does it mess with his confidence? Um, Chip said after the game that I guess Dante was a little banged up. I think it was after the Washington State game two weeks ago. I think he said there may, um, you know, he may have taken a hit on his shoulder or something along those lines. So, uh, but just how do you see this, the quarterback competition or the position kind of playing out going forward? Obviously, Slee is hurt right now, but now you can have Garbers doing well. You still have Dante coming in. He got some reps. All the quarterbacks got some reps yesterday. But just where if, if you're in chip shoes, where where are you going with uh, the kind of the Garbers you know, and, I think, and Dante I think, I think Coach Kelly's got some great options. There's no question. I mean, mm-hmm. when you got – two solid players uh, in, you know, Dante and Ethan. And then you also have Colin who's been banged up, but um, I think it's a, it's a good problem to have. And sometimes it's good too, for a young quarterback to take a step back and kind of watch a little bit again. And Dante is going to be a great player for UCLA. I saw it when I was down there for spring football and, you know, his, the way he handles himself as a person, the way he handles himself as a quarterback, his touch on the football. Um, So I think it's a good problem to have for coach Kelly. I mean, he's a smart coach and he's going to make the right decision for his offense and his football team. So um, I think you're probably going to see a little bit of both of them probably going forward a little bit. Yeah. I wouldn't uh, be surprised by that at all. And as an offensive guy, as a receiver, where, what is your kind of perspective is that, I mean, have you ever been in situations where during the season, you you know, you kind of have two different quarterbacks or two, two different guys kind of leading huddles throughout the season at some point? Yeah, no question. I mean, I've definitely been in that situation when I was a player in college and definitely in the NFL. Um, I think as receivers, you have to do your job. And then we used to always tell whoever's in there, whoever's running the offense, it's our job as receivers to make plays. I mean, that's, that's why we're in our position. So, um, you know, we're going to support whoever is the signal caller and whoever's going to be the one that's, um, you know, making those throws, but as a wideout, it is our job to make plays for the quarterback. Uh, speaking of receivers, you had some incoming trans or some guys who transferred in this past offseason, um, J. Michael Sturdivant and Kyle Ford. Kyle Ford, I believe this might have been his, his highest uh, producing game with 44 yards, but then you have J. Mike with 50, 54 yards and a touchdown. Just tell me a little bit about um, your experience with them during the offseason, if you had a lot of interaction with them at all. Yeah, I did. You know, work closely with both of those guys. Obviously, recruited Kyle out of high school and recruited J. Mike out of high school. When you were um, at Colorado, correct? When I was at Colorado, yeah, yeah offered both of them. Um, she was really close to signing Kyle. 
you know, um, maybe mm, okay. up going to, to, to the team across town, but, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and J Mike was obviously a phenomenal player out of Texas come out of high school. So, um, you know, I definitely spent a lot of time with those guys. I mean, J Mike is a special talent. There's no question, you know, can stretch the field vertically has really good ball skills, understands football. You know, Kyle's a physical guy that, you know, it's good to see him getting more touches because, you know, when I was down there this spring, he played at a very high level. Yeah. And uh, I think once the quarterback position gets, you know, more consistent, guys are playing, you know, more efficiently, um, those balls start to, to find you. And so, um, yeah, excited about both those guys. I think they're going to play dividends down the stretch for, for UCLA for sure. Yeah, I think you make a really good point. Um, that He was one of the standouts Kyle Ford was for me during the spring. And a lot of other reporters and fans who were able to watch uh, the spring practices, they were all kind of blown away by him. Obviously, uh, just being across the street during his previous years in college, um, not a total surprise. But um, just going back to J. Mike, I think uh, it was funny that uh, one of the reporters asked Garber is like, oh, you know, you know, now that you're in, um, what was it? more of an were, were you putting more of an emphasis what is the relationship for you and jay mike getting him the ball and garbers is like i mean when you have a guy who's that you know he just stands out he's just you can't miss him it's it, you know those are the targets you want to have on the field right yeah no question i mean whenever you have a true number one out there mm -hmm. um which jay mike is in college football i mean i'm sure as a quarterback you want to you know look that way and coach Kelly does a great job game planning for his playmakers and putting guys in positions to be successful and make plays so I'm sure, you know, down the stretch here, you're going to see, you know, balls kind of find him. Um, I do want to ask you a little bit about the defense, but just uh, want to see if there were any other points or anything that stuck out to you offensively uh, just on this last game here against Stanford. You could just see that they were definitely in more of a rhythm offensively, you know, staying on mm -hmm. schedule, you know, getting first downs, you know, not having to punt a whole lot. Um, I think whenever, you know, obviously my background being an offensive coach and being a play caller, um, I know what that feels like when you're staying on schedule offensively and you're able to get first downs, keep your defense off the field, play some ball control and also score points. That's a good position to be in as an offense. Um, and just moving over to the defensive side, I think, yeah, that was probably one of the the things. I don't know if the defensive guys would say, but they weren't on the field as much as they may have been in previous games. Uh, just tell me a little bit about what you've kind of seen from this defense. You had a lot of guys returning um, from last year. A lot of those guys transferred in last year. Now they're in their second year. Um is is that a real thing? Like you're in your second year, in the, even though it's a different coordinator, but everyone's gelling together. Everyone's more comfortable. Everyone was kind of able to take that next step together. Yeah, I think defensively, you know, there's some just some really good football players, obviously, with the Murphy twins. And yeah. you got obviously Latu, who's a phenomenal football player. And, you know, you got those, those, those backers are really good football players. You know, you got a, you got a talented secondary. And I, and I, you know, I spent, like I said, I spent all spring football down there as the analyst and spent time with coach Lynn on defense. Mm -hmm. He does a really good job. He's really bright, um, understands um, how to attack offenses, how to take away their strengths. And I think when you have a veteran defense, as far as players go and upperclassmen, I always say you got to win with juniors and seniors in college football. And, uh, UCLA definitely defensively has a lot of those playing for um, them right now. But also I think the, the way coach Lynn runs the defense, I think is very sound and it gives people problems as we can see throughout the season, they've done a heck of a job on defense. Now I'm no X's and O's guy. I'm not a, a football expert by any mean, but I was pretty shocked and, and pretty impressed with Lynn being able to kind of come in the way that he has um, you know, really with no defensive coordinator experience whatsoever. Obviously, his father was a head coach for the Chargers. Um, 
you know, and and Deonton Lynn has spent um, quite a number of years there in the NFL and with some different teams and under some other great head coaches along the way. But I mean, uh, what were your thoughts? I mean, obviously you spent time with them during the spring and, and you know, you're not really sure what's going to happen when the season comes along. But uh, were you pretty surprised or was it kind of as expected? You know, I, honestly, I, was, I wasn't surprised because I was there all spring and I kind of saw how the defense he implemented, the concepts he imp- implemented on defense. And I knew that there was good personnel there on, mm-hmm. on defense. And you know, even though that D-Lynn hasn't, hadn't been a coordinator yet, you know, you're never a coordinator until you're a coordinator. It's like you're never a head coach until right. you're a head coach. And so um, he's a good football coach. He's smart. He listens, you know. I remember just, you know, he picked my brain on a lot of stuff because I'm an offensive guy. He would ask, hey, Chef, what do you think about this? How how do we stop this? How do we attack this? And, you know, we've had some conversations even this year. He's given me a couple phone calls and, hey, what do you think about this? And so um, I think he's doing a heck of a job. You know, I, he, even last year when Coach McGovern was with us and uh, mm-hmm. he was doing a heck of a job those first six six games. Yeah. And, you know, obviously with his illness, he had to step away. And so things kind of changed down the stretch run. But, um you know, I think the personnel is good at UCLA. I think Coach Lynn and the defensive staff do a really good job. They got good football coaches down there, and they know how to handle their positions. They also know how to teach those positions. And, you know, you're seeing the kind of, you know, the fruits of their labor come into fruition during, on Saturday. So it's it's good. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for those guys because whenever you work on a staff and you work with the players, man, you want to see them have success, and, um, you know, they're doing that. So it should be a good stretch run for, for UCLA. One thing I've been curious about and actually been wanting to talk to you about is, can you explain a little bit about what your role was at UCLA as an analyst? Like what, what is kind of the day to day for you or, or what are you doing? I know there's, it's, I guess you can't specific, you can't really coach at certain points. Yeah. I don't, I can't remember if it's during the game or practice. Yeah, The, but... rule, the rule basically is you're not allowed to coach on the field, like during practice, right. games, but behind the scenes, you're allowed to watch film, interact with the staff. So mm-hmm. my role basically was, I was an offensive analyst. So I sat with the offensive staff you know, with Coach Kelly and the offensive staff during the week. And he would, you know, pick my brain on certain things. Different coaches would pick my brain on certain things. I will also work with the receivers with with Coach Neuheisel and, you know, help mm-hmm. them and help the room and, you know, give feedback to Jerry, give feedback to the wideouts. Um, and then throughout the week, I'd work with the defensive staff. I would break down the opposing team's off- uh, offense because I'm an offensive guy. Mm-hmm. And so I would let, you know, the defensive staff know, hey, how – they're going to try to attack you, what their strengths are, what the weaknesses are, what their tendencies are, what he's thinking in certain situations. I would do a basically a first and second down breakdown of the opposing team. I would do a third down breakdown of the opposing team. And I'd also do a red zone breakdown of how they're going to try to attack um, the defense during that week. So it's actually a really re- rewarding. It's, it's honestly, you know, I had, I had a really enjoyable year being with coach Kelly and the staff and, um, you know, I'm, I learned a lot actually too with being with Coach Kelly because when you're an offensive guy and you call plays in this profession, it's sometimes it's good to step back and see how different people do it. And so I, I really enjoyed that year with Coach Kelly and also with Coach McGovern and the defensive staff, and even this spring being with Coach Lynn and the defensive staff. So it was, it's, it was. A, I think the analyst position is vital to college football. I think it helps the staff stay ahead and also gives them kind of some tips that they can use that week. Um, I believe there aren't they and there maybe they're just still talk about it with the analysts. I think them kind of maybe opening up that role a little bit more to probably. Yeah, I think they're 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 going to probably get to the point where it's more like the NFL to where like, you know, they, they're not worried about those guys coaching. I mean, they're all right. coaches. They're all good coaches. So 
Yeah. If a team wants to employ an analyst, I don't think there should be anything forbidding that guy from coaching on the field. It's not, I don't think it's that much of a big, big of a deal, but um, I, I, eventually it's going to get to that point where they allow that rule. And um, it's just a matter of time, I think. Um, so going back to, you know, you're breaking down the first down, second down, third down and stuff like that for Chip Kelly and, and saying, Here, here's what the opponent is going to do for you. Are you presenting like a packet? Do you have a specific time it's, on it's Monday usually, morning? It's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's usually on Sunday afternoon. Okay. And you sit down with the staff and you have, I basically do, I build a cut up and uh, mm-hmm. show their tendencies. Also do PowerPoints and what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, who their top guys are, who they're trying to get the football to. You know, it really gives like, you know, I'm trying to give like paint a picture of what this team is and from an offensive standpoint and same thing for the defensive analysts. They do that for the offensive staff. So I think it's a great way to kind of, you know, paint a picture of the opposing team before they get into game planning. Um, so this isn't some like, so Colorado's coming up this week. The mm-hmm. analyst isn't necessarily, you know, I, I think they were on a bye week, but it, they wouldn't be just looking at this last game. You said you're on Sunday. So that's right. Right after a game. So are you looking at all the previous games throughout the, yeah. the past week or so, even leading up to that game? Yeah. I, I used to do a four game breakdown. So I'd always take four games and, uh, look at their base down stuff. Okay. What are they doing on first and second down? What's their tendencies? Are they a heavy run on first down? Are they a heavy pass on first down? Just kind of want to paint a picture for the D coordinator. So when he starts developing his game plan, okay, all right, they're a heavy run team. Maybe you want to load the box here on first down. Or, hey, they're a heavy pass team. Okay, let's drop coverage on first down. Maybe play more quarters, maybe less man. So it just depends on, you know, what the coordinator wants to build his plan around. But I think an analyst's job is to give him information he can use throughout the week. And being in some of those meetings and kind of going back and forth and exchanging ideas and talking with Chip Kelly about offense, were, was there anything particular that like blew your mind or that was just kind of new or just provided a whole new different perspective on on something in terms of offense? You know, I think what Coach Kelly does a great job of is he does a great job of delegating responsibilities within the room. And uh, mm-hmm. each coach is responsible for certain areas of the base plan. So um, that was one thing that I you know, had a lot of respect for with Coach Kelly is that he he wants information. And um, if you have information, he's going to listen. And so that was one thing that I thought we had a good rapport with, you know, especially like when we played Colorado last year, I'd been around the coordinator that had been at Colorado. And so I kind of gave Coach Kelly and the staff some tendencies of what hurts them, how to attack them with certain types of tempo, certain types of pass concepts, certain run concepts. And, and Coach Kelly does a great job of listening and, and he'll use some of it and some of it he won't, but that's okay. That's the, the whole point of, having those staff meetings is to gather information and then it's, it's the coordinator's job or the head coach's job to make those decisions. But I think it's always good to gather information. That's how you become a better coach. Um, and before we hopped on, I just got done watching uh, the touchdown catch by Jake Bobo. Uh, you got to work with him <laughs> last year. Um, yeah. What was he like? We've had him on the podcast before. He's a real good dude. Uh, what was your impressions of him? And are you surprised? I know a lot of people are saying, Oh, he's slow. And, and, you know, we don't know if he's going to, I think because he went on draft, you know, I think a lot of people, he, he surprised a lot of people when he was on the Seahawks during the off season and did what he did, but uh, just kind of, kind of what were your thoughts working with uh, Jake Bobo? You know, I, I thought Jake was a really good football player. I mean, the one thing about Jake that really stood out for me is his ability to separate at the top of his routes and um, especially on third down, make tough catches. I mean, he was our go-to third down guy last year. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd watch a lot of film together and just talk about coverages, talk about routes. And I think 
me and Jake had a good relationship because I'm a former NFL receiver and I played his position. And so he was always picking my brains like, Hey coach, what, what do you think about this? We think about this on um, this look. And, you know, I think Jake's going to have a really good NFL career. I was very surprised he didn't get drafted um, mm-hmm. just because his film was really good film. And if people watched Jake closely, they saw that guy was a clutch player, man, just made, made plays. And, um, Great, great young man. I'm excited for his success at Seattle. And I remember I texted him on draft day when he didn't get drafted. I said, hey, man, when Seattle had signed him, I said, hey, it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. And now, you know, in camp, it's just going to come down to what kind of football player you are. They're not going to care if you got drafted in the second, third, or fourth, or fifth, or if you're a free agent. If you're a good football player, you'll make that team. And he proved it in the preseason, and he's proven again in the regular season. So I'm excited for Jake. Um, and it would be silly of me not to mention um, DTR being drafted to the Cleveland Browns. You play for the mm. Cleveland Browns, if if I remember correctly. Um, did What was that like for you, seeing a, a guy you worked with go to the Browns? And did you kind of give him any tips or suggestions or recommendations as far as things around Cleveland? You know, it was funny because I was a fifth-round pick, and, and DTR was a fifth-round pick, okay. I believe, too, by Cleveland. And so I sent him a message, too, on draft day, like, hey, man, you're going to love Cleveland. The people love football out there. They're diehard. I mean, I tell them to this day, I still get fan mail from Cleveland. Oh, wow. so, okay. To this day, I mean, 20 something years later, I still get cards sent. I just signed one last week. I was at Chafee College oh. and I got a letter from someone in Ohio. It was one of my playing cards and wanted me to sign it for their grandkid that he's a hey coach. You know, I was a huge fan of yours and I'm going to pass these cards on to my grandchildren. And I told DTR I still have the rookie record for most catches in a game, and I had 10 catches against <laughs> Jacksonville, man, back in 1999, man, a long time ago. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm extremely proud of Dorian. You know, I know he's, you know, obviously he got that first start against Baltimore, and that's a tough team to go against your first yeah. start. But uh, he'll be fine. He's just got to keep working, and it always plays itself out, man. The, the best players always rise to the top. So talk to me about this fan mail because uh, I'm I'm thinking you I believe you just moved back to the IE if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously you're at Chafee now. You're at UCLA. You're at Texas Tech. You like how are they finding your address? I'm assuming they're sending this stuff to the school, right? I don't right? know how they find. I was <laughs> Is it going to your house or I the school? I honestly don't know how they find out my address because everywhere okay. I've lived, everywhere I've lived, I've gotten fan mail sent to my house. So I'm <laughs> curious how they find that. I don't know if you Google it through the post office or what, but. <laughs> It, it, every year, I mean, I get I get fan mail, and it's pretty crazy because Cleveland, man, they are diehard, and um, they were great. When I remember when um, when me and my wife lived in Cleveland, we'd go out to eat dinner, and people would stop by and hey, 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 chef, how's it going? And I mean, just just diehard Cleveland Brown football fans, they love their team for sure, and um, I have I have great memories playing for the Browns. Um, did you? You, didn't you play for the Cowboys or you had some, you were with some other teams, right? I did. I got drafted by Cleveland and then I got mm-hmm. traded to the Cowboys and then finished up my career with the Falcons. That's and right. Enjoyed Falcons. my time in Dallas too. I mean, that was very cool. I got traded. I remember I got traded from Cleveland and I was on the next flight to Dallas. That's what's crazy about the NFL, man. We, yeah. you know, we live, we lived like two blocks from the facility in Cleveland. And then I remember mm-hmm. coming home and I say, Hey, Shane, I got to catch a flight to Dallas. I just got traded. And she's like, what? And she's like, she, we had two young kids and I remember mm. I got on a plane that afternoon I was practicing the next day and I played in the game that following Sunday so that's how fast the turnaround was and um you know it was a good experience though too got to play with Emmett Smith and 
wow. obviously Larry Allen, some, some hall of famers. And so, uh, you know, I enjoyed my time in Dallas. I wish it was a little bit longer, but you know, you can always, it's one of those teams, man. You can always say you played for America's team. And, right. You know, it's like playing for the Yankees, you know, you know, so or playing for the Lakers. So playing for the Cowboys was definitely an honor. Um, I'm now I'm curious, like, do you, how far of a heads up do you find out you're traded or is it just like, Hey, I, I, I literally came into the facility and, um, I was going to get ready for practice. And I, you know, one of the, one of the DFOs came to my locker and said, Hey, you know, coach wants to see you. It literally, I went upstairs, Butch Davis was our head coach at the time. Mm-hmm. So Butch Davis brought me in his office and said, Hey, Darren, you know, I, I think you're a really good player, but you know, we're, we're going to trade you to Dallas. You know, he, he was a former D coordinator at the Cowboys. Um, so he had ties to Jerry Jones and those guys. And, and, um, so that, that's really how it happened. He brought me up to the office. Hey, we're going to trade you. You know, you, got, you have a flight this afternoon. And, um, you know, he just thanked me for, you know, all the hard work I did in the preseason and then went downstairs, told a couple of my friends that were on the team that I got traded and went to the house, told my wife. And then I was on a flight in like two hours. <laughs> Do uh, I, I'm sure. I mean, looking back at it now, that's probably uh, not a bad way to to hear that information um, regarding now. Now they can find it on ESPN, on the bottom ticker or on social media. Right. Yeah, no question. I mean, back then there was no social media. So, right. you know, you didn't find nothing out unless someone called you mm-hmm. or, you know, you got someone came into your lock, locker room and told you to go visit with the coach, you know. And uh, being a part of the Cowboys organization for a period of time, uh, what kind of interaction did you have with Jerry Jones and, and what kind of guy is he? You know, Jerry's straightforward, man. He's He loves football. He loves his Cowboys. And, um, you know, I, I had a couple conversations with him. One when I got there and then after the, the following year, they ended up releasing me and the Falcons picked me up. And I remember this vividly. I was in the locker room and one of the DFOs came and got me and said, hey, Jerry Jones wants to see you and it's never good if the owner wants to see you. Right. So you're like, okay, (laughs) it's probably not good. You know, I'm getting traded or I'm getting cut. And, uh, he brought me in and he had this huge office, like his office is unbelievably big. And I was like, you know, he ends up, I'm sitting at at his desk and he comes in, he comes in and he sits down and he's like, Hey Darren, I just want you to know, man, you're a really good player, but we drafted a couple kit. We drafted a couple players this year and, from what I'm seeing, you know, unless we release you, they're not going to play in front of you. So it was basically a business decision on their end. They wanted to, they drafted a couple of young receivers and they wanted those guys to play. And that's, that's the NFL. It's a business, you know, and sometimes even if you're a really good player, they're going to, if they have invested, you know, draft picks on other players, they're going to move on from you. So that was kind of my experience, but I enjoyed being there. You know, I had some good games there, scored a couple of touchdowns, you know, I scored against the Raiders, scored against the Niners. And so, I always have fond memories of, you know, especially as you get older, I'm 46 now. And then, you know, you watch NFL football games and you go, Hey man, I used to do that. You know, I used to play on Sundays mm-hmm. and that was an honor to, to wear the NFL shield and, and, um, you know, catch touchdowns and get paid for a living to play the game of football. I mean, that's pretty cool. You can tell your kids and tell your friends that you got to play football for a living. Uh, so one of the things that we like to do here on this podcast, especially when we have guests like DTR and Bobo and a bunch of other guys, is yeah. we always like to ask them, who is the toughest guy you've ever played against? And that could be at any level. That could be someone who was on your team during practice, someone you played on the opposing team. Who are a couple guys you could throw out a couple if you want? I mean, the first one for sure was Charles Woodson. Just 
Okay. Going against them in college and going against them in the NFL was just a very, very talented player. You know, um, actually got a chance to go against Deion Sanders when I was in the NFL. He was playing for the Redskins at the time and I was playing for the Browns and he was towards the end of his career, but he was still extremely talented, you know, had great feet, you know, just very fluid on the football field. Um, You know, uh, Carnell Lake was a great player. I got to play Mm -hmm. against when he was the Steelers. Quentin Lake's dad, right? Browns. What's that? Quentin Lake's dad, right? That's Quentin Lake's dad. Yeah, yeah Carnell. Mm-hmm. Carnell's a heck of a football player, man. Tough. You know, Mike Minter played against him in, when he was at Nebraska, and then also when he was at the Carolina Panthers. So just some really good players, man, that um, definitely enjoyed going against those guys. That was one thing about the National Football League, man, is that, you know, every weekend you're seeing stars out there. I, mean, I remember – there's not too many guys I would get up and go watch, but when we played the Vikings, I got up and go watch Randy Moss and got up and go watch wow. Chris Carter, man. I was just like, man, watching these guys play was just phenomenal. I mean, Randy, when I was playing, Randy was in his prime and he was just a different, different, different animal out there, man. It just the way he moved, how mm-hmm. big he was, how fast he was. I mean, it was just, you don't see the guys like him. I mean, that's, that's why he's a hall of famer and that's why he is who he is. But yeah, definitely enjoyed those uh, those competitions against the you know DBs, but also watching other receivers play as well. Um, and you know, obviously, you're a coach, you were a player. Uh, who have been some of the biggest inspirations in your life and in your career? You know, for me, I think you you gain you gain something, you take something from everybody you work with, and everybody every every staff you're on. There's a lot of good things and there's a lot of bad things, you know. I think, um, you know, for me personally, I really just try to take something positive from everybody I've, I've been with, even if the, even if the experience was bad at times. I really try to look at the positive things that I might have gained through that. And so, you know, I think, uh, you know, one coach that probably doesn't get a ton of credit, you know, is, is Tom Kraft at Riverside. I think Tom yeah. is a phenomenal football coach. And, and I used to always tell him when, when I was on his staff, I'm like, man, why don't you do, why don't you do more? Why don't you go like back mm-hmm. to division one? Cause he was a head coach at, at uh, San Diego state. And he, yeah. he just told me like he, you know, he didn't want to move. He wanted to be around his family. And uh, you know, I respected that, you know? And so even for me, I've been a division one coach for 10 years prior to my head coaching job here at Chafee. But like, for me, I'm, I'm still trying to hone my craft and trying to, you know, develop my game as a head football coach and also become a better coordinator in the meantime as well. And so, you know, I think guys like Tom, you know, when I played for Dan Reeves, I was really impressed with Dan and the way he handled his team, the way he handled the players, the way he handled his coaches. You know, Coach Reeves obviously passed away a couple of years ago, but, um, you know, he he had this presence about himself with the football team, but he also had the respect of his coaches around him. And um, I'll never forget that. And that's something I kind of take into my coaching career. Like he's, he was firm, but fair with everybody. And um, that's kind of how I, how I approach, you know, my coaches and, and our players at Chafee. Um, I think, you know, being around Chip, I've learned a lot about how to delegate a little bit more because I've always been, you know, someone that, Hey, if you want to get it done, do it yourself. But I think what Coach Kelly does a great job of being able to delegate responsibilities throughout his staff. And then, um, you know, I'm trying to think of some other guys that I that I played for or uh, worked with. But, um, you know, you know, I'm playing for Coach Neuheisel. You know, Rick, what made Rick really good is, is Rick would listen to the players. 
you know, like if, if you had something to say, like Rick would listen to you. Like he would like, he would like generally listen to you. And, and, um, you know, I really enjoyed playing for Rick. I'm, I was probably going to end up going to UCLA until Rick, you know, got the Colorado job because Rick was the quarterback coach at UCLA when they started recruiting me. I believe it was on, I think it was coach Toledo's staff, I believe. You know, UCLA. It might have yeah. been Terry. I'm not sure if it might have been Terry. But, um, you know, I just, you know, Rick had that innate ability to kind of, you know, connect with players and make it fun. And um, I see a lot of that in Jerry, too. Jerry's, you know, very similar to his dad. And mm-hmm. so Jerry's going to end up being – he'll be a head coach someday because of the way he interacts with people. And, and uh, you know, he's still he's still developing his, his, his skill set, but he's got a bright future in that way as well. Um, but, yeah, those, I mean, those are kind of guys that I was you – know, like I said, you take, you take good things and you take bad things from everybody you kind of work with. Uh, you met you mentioned Jerry there. Um, I, I told you before he sounds just like his dad. But um, <laughs> yeah, he does. What what is the what what is that maybe that transition like, or what has it kind of been like for him? Because I mean, it kind of in a way kind of blew my mind a little bit. And again, I, I haven't covered a lot of college football prior to this, but I knew he was a quarterback, and then you know he was kind of a, I think a GA, and then he's like, hey, he's the new receivers coach, and I'm like. I guess I can maybe see how that would work. Like, you know, he kind of, he can provide a different perspective, but uh, what, what does he like with, with those guys? I heard he can, he can get a little, little vocal sometimes if, if he needs to, but yeah, he seems like he such a I'm... nice guy though. <laughs> no, he's a, he's a, he's a good young coach. He does a good mm-hmm. job with those guys. I think it was good spending the year with him too. Cause Jerry picked my brain a lot on receiver play. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the, the thing about Jerry that makes him a good coach too, is all good coaches want to learn. And you got to be one to learn. And, and and Jerry was one to learn about releases, about, you know, route running, about stems and about, you know, coverages. And so I, I, I enjoyed working with, with, with Jerry. I think he's got a, you know, a bright future ahead of him and he does a good job coaching the whiteouts. And, um, you know, I think, you know, he knows, he understands scheme. And I think he's, he's, he's learning how the receivers work and how they, how they run routes and how they separate and how they identify things. And, you know, he, he's going to, he's going to have a bright future, man. He's, he, he's going to be fine. Uh, I'll get you out of here on a couple more questions. Um, obviously you were an analyst, so you probably weren't as involved or in, involved at all with recruiting, but um, what is that landscape? And like, what have you kind of learned being in college football and the way that's kind of developed over the last couple of years? Uh, what are your kind of thoughts on that? You know, I, I really believe that we're kind of in uncharted territory as far as where like the nil is and Mm -hmm. the recruiting landscape is i really believe there's got to be some kind of congressional legislation to get it under wraps to where you know football has never been a level playing field and it's never going to be a level playing field but there's got to be some parameters in recruiting that makes it more of a ability to sign good players without having to you know drop bags all the time and so i I really believe that's the next step in the recruiting evolution is that there's gotta be some, I, I really believe what it's going to get to is that there's, it's going to end up being like, not like the NFL because you're not talking about that kind of money, right. but I do, it's going to be more like a minor league system to where there's going to be salary caps almost. And the money's going to have to be tracked because right now none of this money's being tracked. I mean, it's being mm-hmm. thrown out there by collectives and who knows who's actually running these collectives. I'm sure yeah. that there's money getting that are changing hands with families that are not being accounted for. And I think 
if you want to do it right, we all know that college football is big business. That's, I mean, look at the coaches' salaries. I mean, look at yeah. what the universities are bringing in. Well, let's 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 make it more uniform then. If we're if we're if we're going to do this, let's do it right. And you know, we have these conferences that are generating millions upon billions of dollars through TV revenue. Why not have a structure in place that makes sense for everybody? You know, mm-hmm. like let's have let's have a let's have a general manager, let's have a salary cap person. And this is what they're able to work with every year. And that way it's more uniform. That way, that way more teams can compete on a national level. Because right now, let's be honest, there's probably only about six or seven teams that are really competing every year for a national championship. It's not yeah. that many teams that are actually competing for a national championship. You know, we have a, a four-team playoff and they're trying to expand it to more. But until there gets more parity within the conferences as far as the level of talent across the board. It's not going to change. It's going to be the same six, seven teams every year. And how, how does that uh, recruiting and and maybe just like maybe even the depth of the roster at the junior college level, how has that been impacted by the NIL? I know there was the pandemic year and that kind of threw a wrench in a lot of things for the high school recruits. Um, what What is kind of the landscape right now for, for junior college in, in regards to NIL and recruiting and um, just depth on a roster and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I think the portal, the portal has changed you know, recruiting in the sense that there's not as many scholarships for high school kids mm-hmm. because four-year schools are going to look at the portal first, look at four-year to four-year transfers, probably go to JC's next and then go to high school's third. And so what you're seeing is you're going to see, you're really going to see an influx of talent at the junior college level because there's a lot of high school kids that in the old days would have gotten scholarships, but mm-hmm. now they're not going to get those scholarships because they're going to go to portal kids first. And so it's it's really you know for me as a as a head football coach at the junior college level it's probably good for me, but it's not as good for the high school kids because there's just not as many scholarships to go around anymore. Um, and I always found it interesting. A lot of people always say Chip Kelly doesn't know how to re- or doesn't like to recruit high- at the high school level. Um, but one of the things Brandon Huffman from Twenty Four Seven Sports told me was. Um, that Chip Kelly's looking for a lot of maturity. He's looking for guys who aren't about the fancy graphics and, uh, you know, all these different bells and whistles. Like he just wants guys who are, who are about books and ball. Um, tell me about the character of some of the guys that have kind of come in the locker room and that he's kind of brought in over the last year when you were there. Well, I, I haven't, I told this to coach Kelly when I worked for him last year, I said, I said, Chip, man, I love this team. You have such good kids on this team mm-hmm. and you know, they don't, they don't have character issues. They don't have things going on that is is pulling them away from from football. Um, I think Coach Clay does an excellent job of evaluating talent. He does an excellent job of evaluating character, and he wants guys that are not only about football but are about going to school and doing the right thing. So. Uh, I think Coach Kelly is just not about the glitz and glamour. He's not. That's just not who he is. And that's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. As long as you're doing a good job of evaluating and as long as you're doing a good job of upgrading your roster every year. And I think Coach Kelly has done that. I mean, UCLA sitting at five and two right now, um, you know, had a couple of losses, but to some good teams. And so I think they're right in the hunt. Uh, and Jake Wiley was a Colorado guy. Did you have any interaction with him? I believe he came in right when you left, but did you guys have any interaction at, at Colorado? Yeah, of course. I signed Jake. I recruited Jake. That's and, right. Uh, signed, signed Jake. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm glad he ended up at UCLA. He's a good player. And I know he's helped UCLA with some depth and also playing in games. So mm-hmm. um, same thing with Kyle. I'm glad Kyle's is, is um, you know, being a contributor because he's a good player and he's a good he's a good young man. I know his mom. I know his dad. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've had interactions with all those guys. 
Um, and final question for you. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, be where your feet are. You know, be where your feet are. Um, people, I, I always tell young coaches this. It's like you can't worry about the next job because if you don't do a good enough job with the job you have, you'll never get the next job. And so, mm-hmm. you know, one thing I'm very conscious with myself is about just being where my, where my feet are, you know. And, you know, yeah, eventually I want to become a Division One head coach. And eventually I want to move up in the coaching ranks as a head football coach. But in order to do that, I have to do a good job of where I'm at. And, you know, right now – I'm at Chafee College. We're seven and zero, um, and that's right. You know, we're 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 ranked we're ranked in the state rankings, and um, you know, I'm uh, my job right now is to do the best job I can at Chafee, and so you know, the best advice I give people is, hey, be where your feet are. You know, if you want the next job, then you got to do the best job you can with this job. Awesome. Thank you so much, Darren. Appreciate your time. Thanks for being here with us, and uh, hopefully, we'll catch up again down the road. All right. Thanks, James. Thank you. This is the Believe in UCLA football podcast presented by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.